Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. Back on March 1st, the Museum of Modern Art New York opened Judd, the first posthumous retrospective of Donald Judd's work ever shown in the United States. Well, less than two weeks later, the exhibition closed as the COVID-19 pandemic set in. MoMA has reopened, and so has Judd. And so for this week's Holiday Clips episode, we're featuring my conversation with co-curator Ann Temkin. MoMA has extended Judd through January 9th, 2021. Entry is available by time ticket. We'll have a link on manpodcast.com. As of this recording, tickets are sold out through September 10th, but more tickets have been coming online each week. Judd was curated by our guest, Ann Temkin, with Yasmil Raymond, Tamar Margulit, and Erica Cook. The exhibition features over 70 sculptures, paintings, drawings, and prints. It highlights Judd's important sculpture practice, especially his eagerness to eliminate many of art's usual pillars, such as narrative or metaphor. Ann Temkin after the break. This fall, Hammer Museum in Los Angeles presents Made in L.A. 2020, a version, in partnership with the Huntington Library, Art Museum, and Botanical Gardens. The fifth edition of the Biennial, which highlights artists working throughout greater Los Angeles, features new installations, videos, films, sculptures, performances, and paintings, many commissioned specifically for Made in L.A. The exhibition will show the 30 artists at both institutions, two versions that make up the whole. Made in L.A. 2020, a version, on view this fall at the Hammer and the Huntington. Find details and sign up for updates at hammer.ucla.edu and at huntington.org. Explore art with Getty. Visit our online exhibition, Bauhaus Building the New Artist, winner of this year's Muse Award for Best Online Experience. Watch videos about art making, conservation, and art history. Read timely blog posts to boost your knowledge and artistic spirits. Learn to make and explore art from home. And tune into Recording Artists, winner of the 2020 Webby Award for Best Arts and Culture Podcast. Learn more at getty.edu slash art. Artist Mark Bradford creates monumental works of abstract painting and collage. The exhibition Mark Bradford End Papers focuses on the key material and fundamental motif Bradford employed early in his career and has returned to periodically over the past two decades, end papers. At the Modern Art Museum of Fort Worth, the exhibition has been extended through January 10th. Information at themodern.org. And we're back. Anne Temkin, welcome back to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you very much. In the introduction of the catalog, you juxtapose two stories, one in which Jackson Pollock is talking to Lee Krasner and one in which Lucy Lepard is beginning an interview with Donald Judd. I think that's the perfect place for us to start, too. Could you tell those two stories? Yeah, I really like these two stories. Well, I've liked them both (laughs) for a long time. The one that begins the introduction is Lucy Lepard interviewing Donald Judd in the Whitney 1968 show, his first museum show. He's just, what, 39 years old and 38, 39 years old. And he's absolutely awkward. This so goes against the image many people have in their minds of Judd as so eloquent and so powerful a speaker because in his written word, he certainly comes off as very strong and emphatic and not a shred of uncertainty. 
But in person, he wasn't like that. He was very soft-spoken. And in this interview with Lucy Lepard, a critic and dear friend of his, she's questioning about the work that they're surrounded by. And he's clearly diffident about explaining it or describing it. And the part that we excerpted that I just thought was so funny was she says to him, and this is clearly a conversation that has been going on, you know, many months and years already. So you really won't call it sculpture. He's like, no, it's not sculpture. And I think the best line in the transcript is, is she asks him again, it's just inaudible is what the transcript says. So, you know, you don't even, you can just see him like squirming or something like that. And she's just getting more and more perplexed. Well, you know, what in the world does this leave me with? And I think we end the excerpt with, she says to it something along the lines of, well, what you know, more, more can you say? He says, I, I never even thought about sculpture, almost never. So he, he's desperately trying to get her and whoever is going to be reading that interview away from the idea that he makes sculpture. Because for him at that moment, if he were to have admitted to making sculpture, he would be admitting to doing something that fell into a continuum with what you name it, Brancusi or Henry Moore or Giacometti or Calder or, or let alone sculptors from previous centuries did. And he felt strongly that what he did was something false. And you pointed out in your introduction how this was a real break from even the previous generation or half generation had thought about wanting to consider their work within a tradition. And that's the Pollock and Krasner story. Yeah. So this is a real old story, a good abstract expressionism mythology story. But one I found, I've for a long time just found incredibly moving. And Pollock is painting a drip painting and finishes and calls his wife Lee Krasner over and asks her with genuine worry, is this a painting? And what I've always loved about that, imagining that little scene, is he didn't ask his wife, an excellent painter herself, is this a good painting, right? He asked her, is this a painting? Because what he had done so did not correspond to everything everybody until then would have assumed made a painting that he needed the reality check that, yeah, you know, that's a painting, darling. But at that point, what he wanted was still to be making a painting. For Judd, a generation later, what was important and very, 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 very much influenced by the phenomenon of Pollock and his peers in the prior decade, prior couple of decades. You know, what Judd is wanting is to make something not that his wife would assure him was indeed still a sculpture, but he wanted to be making something that couldn't be called a painting, couldn't be called a sculpture something that in fact broke entirely from that modern tradition, even if it were a modern avant-garde tradition. Of course, when we, when we think of sculpture, we think of what is left of a bulk after something that has, after stone has been removed from it. And that's something that sculptors would continue to be interested in into the 20th century. As you note in the catalog for Judd, his work is quite often a series of hollow volumes or spaces from which volume has been removed, and it's the absence of volume that's important, such as in the progression pieces, where 
what's not there is, is pointedly referred to as being as important as what is there. Why did those hollowed out spaces become so important to Judd? Did that come out of his painting explorations or something else entirely? I think it came out of a whole set of things. And, and there's no way, obviously, for us to kind of excavate it with any precision. And also, it sounds much more neat in retrospect than I'm sure it felt at the time. That's always important to remember. But I think for him, he was thinking about how do I make something that completely breaks away, even though there's no such thing, from precedent. And as he wrote, he did think about sculpture as something that was a solid mass. So if he wanted to make a three-dimensional form that wasn't sculpture, he shouldn't make a solid mass. And so even before he starts having the work be fabricated by others and he's hand-making it himself, as we show in the first gallery of the exhibition, there are works in which he puts a metal pipe on top of a box. So you have the air flowing through that metal pipe. Or he makes a piece in which the top half of the box is itself cut in half diagonally so that you sort of have a sandwich with the top quarter of it removed. These kind of moves to import empty space into the frame of what one might have expected to be a full space are the ways that for him, I feel, both get away from the idea of something like a statue as what sculpture is, and into this idea as well of the space of art and the space of life not being utterly separate. So if the space you're standing in and the air you're breathing in and out is also invading and informing the space of the sculpture you're looking at, there's a connection there, which is very different than the connection between a person standing looking at something on a pedestal, maybe even under a glass vitrine. The first piece you mentioned there is the Hirshhorn sculpture from 1963. It's cadmium red with that pipe at the top. And I am always, I mean, I think, you know, any Judd lover has long thought of that as an important sculpture, but it, it feels even more important in the context of the career arc because we see over and over again in Judd's career how important light passing through a sculpture is to him in a way that, I mean, you know, Michelangelo didn't want light going through marble, right? Why was light passing through a sculpture important to Judd? Why was that something he kept returning to? Well, I think one could put together light and air in a, in a sense. And I, and I think it does, have, it does have to do in my mind, and there'd be different answers for different people, but this idea of life, right? This idea of energy in terms of real molecules that are part of the real world these are objects that he wants to be in our space, which means space that's informed by light and space that accommodates light. I feel like that's, the, that's almost like a symptom or, or a telltale sign of a theory or, or a concept that, that's not that hard to understand, which is that these works of art, they're indeed works of art, are things that you are among and that are among you in a relationship that is just a different one from 
something one looks at, period. It's a fuller experience. You know, it's interesting to me how you phrase that. And I'm going to break the chronology of Judd's work and how I intended for us to to kind of start in 62 and then advance. Because the way you just phrased that reminded me of how I was struck by something in the catalog. There are a number, I mean, probably at least a dozen, of 1960s installation views of exhibitions in which Judd participated, or that were indeed Judd exhibitions. Uh, lots, lots of these black and white pictures in the catalog. And one of the things that really struck me, and I guess surprised me, even though it shouldn't have, is how much more densely Judds were installed than they are now, so that you as a viewer were among them. And now I think we're used to seeing Judds installed in much more spacious environments, particularly at, say, Chinati or at, or at the Judd Foundation in Marfa. And I guess I wonder if you noticed that, kind of a difference in exhibition practice or installation practice, and if you think it means anything. There are a few responses I have to that, actually. I think, for one, some of those photos can be very deceiving. And I think in in many of these early installation shots, no matter where you're talking about, things that are very close can look very spacious and vice versa. It can be really, really deceptive. Another response that I have is the kind of mythology of minimalism over the years has turned us all almost into perhaps a dangerously caricatural notion of, oh, you know, you can fit one sculpture per acre of space. And that somehow, you know, anything gains an aura by just having mountains of space around it. And, you know, one can really go overboard in that direction. At the same time, there's no question that these things gobble up space. And the more you give them their elbow room, the happier they get. And I think we were walking a tightrope in putting the exhibition together of having just enough of that sort of space that they need while not just making it an empty show, right? And finding ways to put the best combinations of works in the best adjacencies and positions so that we could sort of ate our cake and had it too. We fit more works into the show to tell a story or many stories that we hope to tell while leaving each and every work a very distinct place and sense of independence from the other works around them. And then one more answer to your question is I do think in those early days, you know, things were not ideal. The work wasn't even understood yet. And probably in a lot of those early installations, even in monographic shows for Judd, there was probably less of an acknowledgement that so much of the part of the piece was the space around it. And you do see funny pictures of, you know, just like a row of stacks or something like that, that make you realize that there was just not, not even the knowledge to know what they didn't know about the, the space these things really were asking for. To say nothing of how floor molding looks like such a mistake in those 60s pictures. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So let's dip back into Judd and moments of his making. In 1962, he moves away from painting, or at least from mostly two-dimensional wall-mounted objects, and into floor-presented three-dimensional objects. 
the transition seems sudden. At one point in 1962, he's making the large cadmium red painting that is now at SF MoMA, and, and then the cadmium red is suddenly on the floor in, in three-dimensional objects. What about that moment of transition is important to you or, or became evident to you as, you as you worked on it? It's typical of Judd for me in this combination of seeming happenstance and seeming years of preparation. You know, so I think what's the cliche, you know, luck greets those who are prepared for it or something like that. The insight that he could come off the wall may have felt sudden the day that it happened, but in many other ways, it was almost like an inevitable result from the way he was making his paintings thicker, projecting farther from the wall, even curving up off of the flatness of the picture plane. So again, in retrospect, it's a very neat story. At the time, it was, I imagine, less of a clear evolution than it seems to us today to have been. But then once it happened, he was absolutely convinced. And this idea of the work of art that was neither a painting nor a sculpture compelled him, and, and he was off and running. That 62-63 moment seems like, and I think was, a, a significant shift in Judd's everything, except his use of color, which migrates. And it seems to me, and I'm happy to be called wrong on this, that there's kind of a blended progress through to the end without a shift as significant as that one from 62 to 63. Is that how you see it? Or is there another shift that we should think of as being as important or close to as important? You know, I understand from the, the tenor of your question that, that you're recognizing that, that one of our interests in the exhibition and, and the book was showing that there are many more turns in the road and kind of both logical and unpredictable shifts in Judd's approach throughout the course of, what, some 30-some years of working. But I also respect your, you know, implied position there of, of the monumentality of, of that particular turn in 62 and 63. And, you know, just think back, put yourself back in that moment. It's the exact same moment where Andy Warhol starts using silkscreen instead of hand painting the canvases, right? It's a turning point. It's definitely at that moment for this post-abstract expressionist generation, whether they turn into a pop artist, whether they turn into a sculptor like Judd, there's a decision to be made about, I am going to make painting or sculpture, even if I don't call it sculpture, something, I'm going to make something that changes history. And for me, it's very moving to think back to that, to realize the extremity of the of the goal they sell themselves. The one shift in the work that maybe seems to me as being as, I don't know if abrupt is the right word, but as significant as the 62-63 moment, or dramatic, yeah, that's a better word, comes in 1984 or so when um, Judd begins his multicolored works. I, I am not a Judd scholar. Is that a big shift or was that just a natural progression? How do you see that having happened in 84-ish? 
That for me is is a very dramatic shift too, and one that hasn't been properly acknowledged, I think, because that work was not as much written about and seen in that decade before his death. And, and then, you know, he dies and attention kind of shifts. But there was an amazing turn in the work in 84 when he begins using a new fabricator outside of Zurich. And this is a kind of, in a way, technological cause to an artistic question, to an artistic desire. But, you know, I don't think you can put all the explanation, obviously, um, on the technological side, because he needed to want that technology or to see what that technology could offer him. But what it was, was folding sheets of aluminum What it was, was the technological ability that these Swiss manufacturers had to fold aluminum so that you didn't need to weld it. And you could make, as he did, these very, very thin aluminum boxes that were coated with different colors and coated with industrial colors in such a way that they didn't look painted. They just looked like a red box or a green box or a yellow box, etc., And for the first time in his life, he began to make things that just weren't one color or two colors, like a certain color, plexi and uh, aluminum. He wouldn't make things that were just two colors or one color, one material or two materials. But he used this aluminum to make things that that were, as the name says, multicolored and polychromatic sculpture for the first time. And when you think about it, you know, it, it maybe doesn't seem that extreme, but a good thought experiment to do is to think of a 1960s or 70s Judd stack. And no matter if you're thinking of a plexi one or a painted one, whatever material, you're thinking yellow all the way up or blue all the way up or copper all the way up. And the whole idea of a rainbow stack where you'd have a red unit and a green unit and a yellow unit and a blue unit in a tower, it's it's like an unthinkable idea. And then there, all of a sudden, in 94, this is exactly the track that Judd embarks on, where he can have a full palette of ready-made industrial colors that he can make his work from. And it's an exuberant, exuberant body of work from that last decade that was, in many ways, not understood at the time, because it didn't correspond to all of the stereotype assumptions of minimalism. Your mention of Dubendorf, Switzerland, where Judd started having work fabricated in 1984 and would for another decade until he died in 1994, gives me the opportunity to shill a little bit for the catalog, which is absolutely uh, terrific. I'm sure many listeners are familiar with the, well, with the, with the Tate Modern's Judd catalog. The big difference, a big difference here is that it Looks to me like everything's been shot fresh for the MoMA catalog. The representations of the works are enormously better. And there are a number of really good catalog, catalog essays, including one by Yasmiel Raymond, who posits that um, Dubendorf, which is an eastern suburb of Zurich, should be added to New, uh, New York and Marfa as places we think of Judd as having lived, as, as, as having made significant work. And so I'm, I'm pleased to have the opportunity to point people toward, toward that essay. While we're, while we're on the multicolored works, what do you think most informed Judd's interest in color 
And did Barnett Newman, O.E. Newman scholar and producer of the 2002 Newman retrospective, and did Newman have anything to do with it? I do think that Judd was a longtime admirer of artists who made paintings from the time that he spent seven or eight years making paintings before he gave that up. So not only Newman, although Newman was a friend as, as well as somebody whose work he admired tremendously, but thinking of Pollock as one of the great, great influencers of Judd's work. In fact, thinking about Newman and, and Judd, Newman and Pollock regarding Judd, you know, so much of their greatness as painters is part of what made him become a sculptor. You know, just thinking in terms of anxiety of influence, for example, there's a whole story that can be told about why he didn't feel he could equal them in painting, but okay, then how could I do it? I can go to three dimensions and maybe not equal them, but attempt to reach something of the landmark status that they reached at their moment. But he also, he was a big lover of art. I mean, you know, he went to museums. He looked at hundreds of works of art wherever he traveled. He had a vast art library. And color, you know, color is part of the history of art, is a core part of the history of art, no matter what culture, no matter what kind of work you're looking at. And it was especially interesting to him in a, in a way that the materiality of the objects that he was making and the space that he was putting in them, putting them in, was important. I mean, all of, all of those issues are really what go into making a Judd. While we're on color, let's talk about a few Judd and color things. Cadmium red is the color he's using as he's coming off of the two-dimensional wall and onto the floor. We talked about it a moment ago. Why that color? And does his interest in or choice of that color have anything to do with a painting you surely recall from your years in Philadelphia? I think that that color is one that he specifically spoke about in terms of being very good at defining edges and articulating the border of a form. So he spoke about it in entirely non-expressive terms, you know, purely structural terms that cadmium red light allowed you to see the, the edge of a work or the many dimensions of edges of various works. You know, I buy that. You can't argue with him knowing what he was talking about in, in describing its advantage that way. And yet, obviously, it leaves out so much, right? It leaves out so much about what a bright orange red like that expresses, right? I mean, you look at a color like that, it's, it's full of not emotion in the sense of a Mark Rothko kind of soulful, confessional expressive color. But it's, it certainly promotes or elicits feeling in a viewer that's very different than it would if they were all navy blue or if they were all gray. Or chartreuse, as one of the early ones was. Yes. So even though he didn't choose to speak about that, for me, there's something about him liking that cadmium red light that does go beyond its role as a delineator. Judd did live in Philadelphia in 1947. He surely would have known the great crucifixion diptych uh, by Vander Weyden there. 
each of those panels has that big red textile hanging from a masonry wall in which the edge of the red textile is made all the clearer by what you were just discussing. Do you think that painting was important to him? Or do you think that painting motivated his cadmium red use? I mean, going back to what we were saying earlier, where at the end of his life, he really just sort of let his love of color rip. He also wrote an essay just the you know months before he died about color, particularly. And he brings up that painting at that point as a particular object that he loved and remembered from what at that point is nearly 50 years prior. Now, do we have the sense that he had that very conscious memory of, of that painting 15 years later in New York City? Who knows? But it's, it's there in the kind of bedrock of, of his visual memory, for sure. And that painting, that, that color, that cadmium red light color, if you start to look for it in historic paintings, you know, Renaissance paintings, for sure, it, it, that's, a, that's a pretty good hunt to, to go on. One other place I see Judd learning from color is, is from Matisse. Indeed, in a 1975 interview, Judd talked about his interest in Matisse and scale. And in an 87 interview, he talks about how as a painter, particularly, he paid close attention to Matisse. I think the standard art historical reading, both of his Matisse references, is that he noticed that Matisse found that the intensity of a color is related to how much of it is within a given artwork, how much of the object is X color. I mean, I, I think it's fair to suggest he never forgot that. Yeah, no, Judd definitely held Matisse as a favorite. In fact, in one of his buildings in Marfa, there's a beautiful black and white Matisse lithograph on the wall. And, you know, there are certain lineages that feel very obvious for artists, for us to draw connections to. So if you think about Judd, you're probably, especially if you were looking at black and white reproductions of Judd's, one can imagine that the conversation went more in the direction of Malevich and Judd or Mondrian and Judd, very geometric abstraction that preceded his. But especially if you look at the works in real life and just kind of, you know, point your head in a different kind of direction, the precedent of the color of Matisse is a wonderful kind of joyful lineage in, into which, for me at least, Judd absolutely places himself too. Let's switch gears to the materials Judd uses. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I think the stacks are the first forms to which Judd brought multiple materials. He makes stacks out of uh, anodized iron, stainless steel, copper. Is it meaningful or interesting or relevant that that's the form he uses to which he first brings multiple materials? You you mean he, not multiple materials in, in one object, but he would do this same. That actually wouldn't be true, there, that there there would be floor boxes or there would be wall progressions or, or wall boxes that Earlier? all around the same time he was, he was experimenting with different metals. So what do you think he found in, 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 in shifting those materials? So when he, when he goes from using anodized iron to stainless, what's, what's he finding useful there when he goes from, from, or, or, or brings in brass, what do you, what, what, what in the materials matters to him? 
So what's really great about that is it's the kind of question that we can ask 50 years after the term minimal was introduced and like a while since that was sort of taken as a gospel, I think, because my answer contradicts everything that might lead you to think about the word minimal with Judd, because what he loved in all of those materials was their characteristics, right? So if you have a certain gauge of steel, or if you have a galvanized iron that has all of those snowflakey spangles in it, or if you have an aluminum, or if you have another gray metal, not two of those grays are alike, either in their reflectivity, either in their color, either in their sense of density. And then if you start bringing in things that are altogether different colors, like brass or copper, you know, it's a, it's a really wealth of coloristic textural qualities that are kind of enough for Judd, right? He doesn't need to paint them different colors necessarily or make them into different shapes to find variety. It also strikes me as, as a range of materials that belie his anti-sculpture status, right? I mean, a, a sculptor was happy to let marble be the marble, be, be the surface, just as Judd is happy to let these different metals provide surfaces. And absolutely. And, and the difference being that they weren't ones that were thought of to do that for art. Right. Although, you know, after him, of course, they would be, yeah. And, you know, leaving alone those early career paintings, in, in, in 1973, Judd begins using naked plywood. He had used plywood before, including in some of his earliest sculptures in the early 1960s, but in 1972, he uses it naked and un, unadorned, if you will. Was it as simple as that's when he met Peter Ballantyne, who was, who was a plywood guy, or was there something that he discovered in the material be it that it was organic or surface or something else? I think that, that plywood, like, say, a sheet of aluminum or galvanized iron, had the appeal of being an industrial material, not a fine material, that had a lot of surface interest, right? And, and that had a lot of visual quality to it that one just took advantage of as a ready-made. I also think metaphorically, this was the time that his work was becoming more architectural in scale as he was beginning to live and work in Marfa. And the idea of sculpture taking on architectural proportions, whether within the space of a room or in a commissioned work, site-specific work, this all became very relevant for the 70s. So I think the idea of plywood as something that you build with actually makes a lot of sense as something that became interesting to him as a material to use for the work. Probably a few more answers to that as well. Speaking of materials that Judd starts with and that he kind of carries through in one way or another, plexiglass, um, it's there in the earliest floor-mounted pieces, such as the 1963 sculpture at the National Gallery of Art that we talked about earlier in the show, and he keeps using it you know, into the 1990s. What about Plexi do you think he liked? So many things. For one thing, it was new, right? And to go back to Matisse, Matisse said, paraphrasing badly here, but that a great artist needed to be of his time. And Judd knew that. And one of the things that being of his time meant was using materials that had been invented, I mean, you know, within recent memory, 
So the plasticity, the plasticness of, of Plexi was a real appeal. Also the idea of getting away from being a hand maker, for example, a painter of color, here was color that was ready-made. And you got a sheet of Plexi, it was purple, just like a sheet of aluminum was gray. You didn't do something to it, it was just inherently purple or pink or yellow or orange or whatever. And that appealed to his sense of the hands-off concept of what it would be the artist would contribute to the work. I also think the great thing about Plexi was it was transparent or translucent. So all of those qualities of emptiness and hollowness and space that we were talking about at the beginning of the show are revealed by the Plexi. We have a piece in the show from 1964, which is one of a number that have come to be called turnbuckles. And that's because there are wires that go in the interior of the sculpture from the across the length of the sculpture from one end to the other. And they're a wire at one side, a wire at the other side that come together in a buckle in the middle. And sort of their tension, almost like a rubber band, holds the two ends of the sculpture together. Well, what does he make that box around the three sides that holds those two ends together? He makes them plexi so that you can actually see through and, and understand that those turnbuckles are holding the sculpture together and that if you were to unclasp the two turnbuckles, the whole piece would fall apart. That's interesting that you can understand the interior of the sculpture thanks to plexi being the material that that box is made of. I'm also struck by how Judd often used plexi in ways that allowed the viewer to see that it was a reflective surface or that the surface was reflective. There's a long history of reflection being important to American philosophy. Emerson's 1836 Nature is built around a series of reflections, both metaphorical and not. And of course, there are all those American paintings, uh, painters who then take that idea forward um, with all of those white mountains and other mountains, I guess, for that matter, reflected in, in lakes. Do we have any reason to believe that Judd was interested in the, the reflections Plexi provided? Yes, it wasn't something he talked about particularly. His own rhetoric really focused on the matter-of-factness of his work, but I think that the flip side of that coin is the degree of mystery and sort of magical effects that come from such qualities as reflectivity that remain equally powerful to an observer today. And they aren't the ones that served his purposes in trying to define, you know, a very down-to-earth type of art. But I would be hard-pressed to say that these more, well, mysterious, I wouldn't say mystical, but these much more intangible and sort of aspects dealing with beauty, right, and, and, and with sensuous, perceptible, emotional kind of thinking. He always talked about the non-distinction between thinking and feeling. Questions of reflectivity or optical illusion are a perfect example of that. You know, your feeling and your thinking can't be distinguished as you're reacting to that set of visual effects. I, you know, being an art history nerd, I'm always thinking about 
someone like Judd in the context of other artists, both artists from his own time and earlier, and art historians over the many years have spent lots of ink on Newman and Judd and Flavin and Judd and and the other big male minimalists and Judd. And the catalog for this show got me thinking more than I have in a long time about Bondicu and Judd. Judd reviewed Lee Bondico's shows. I think at one point he reviewed two in like three months or two in four months or something. What in Lee Bondico do you think most attracted him and did he most address? He respected her enormously. And if you look at the developments in that work from 60 to, you know, 65 even, you realize how much the issues she was thinking about in terms of projection from a wall and and empty space and full space and issues of presence in a work of art that's freestanding on a wall. The idea of what he saw in the early 60s as he reviewed more than 600 exhibitions as an art critic just can't be overstated, right, in terms of how that informed what he was thinking about in terms of his own work. I mean, I don't think you could have had a more informed person who was at that point in his early 30s deciding how he was going to do what he was going to do. And he took very, very seriously the work of peers, as you say, like Chamberlain or Flavin, Frank Stella, the ones that have been mentioned more, but people like Bondaku, people like Kusama as well. You know, I think this is another aspect of our work in wanting to debunk a certain amount of the Judd mythology with this show and this book. The minimalists have been characterized as male. And so maybe people assume that they weren't looking at the work of, in fact, really close associates who, who were women. And, and Bondaku certainly is one of those. Yeah, that's 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 interesting. That reminds me of Ann Goldstein's superb Mocha show from ten or fifteen years ago, A Minimalist Future, that worked to complicate that that story, both in terms of installing Truitts next to Judds, but also in terms of installing Easterners next to Westerners, trying to really fudge up that story. Of course, some of us kind of like to point to Larry Bell as, as, as maybe being the first minimalist, you know, his work of the late 50s being forms that would preoccupy a lot of the minimalists in, in the subsequent years. Bell, a Californian, but that's work he made in New York. Finally, I want to talk a little bit about drawings. There are 14, by my count, uh, drawings in the show and dozens more in the catalog, like, like so many more in the catalog, I didn't even try to count them all. I would guess maybe like 70. And the catalog often includes drawings related to specific works as a point of reference. So for that 63 Hirschhorn piece that you brought up and that I keep bringing up, there's a drawing um, on the facing page in the catalog that goes with that sculpture. One of the interesting things about that drawing, presumably part of why it's there, is the measurements that Judd outlines in the drawing are not the measurements that the sculpture ended up being. Do you have a couple of favorite examples of what we learn from being able to to reference Judd's drawings and and the sculpture together? The idea of the drawings being in the show here and there, even though we couldn't do anything approaching a, a, Judd, a Judd drawing retrospective, was really to make the point for the museum goers 
that these things, all of the sculpture that they see in the exhibition was conceived in his mind and then on paper or through making drawings and sketches on paper, calculations on paper. The way that all of his assistants talk about Judd's use of time was that mornings were devoted to reading, writing, and drawing. So the making of a sculpture, even though it's not his hands putting the sheets of metal together, the making of, of the sculpture so much occurs in his head and, and then on paper that that felt crucial to, to make visible in the face of the show. And I think, it, it, as you say, the, the drawings for things that never became a work are as instructive as the things for drawings that became a work, right? Or the things, the calculations for measurements that he chose not to use as much as other ones he ended up using. You realize that as self-evident as an obvious and maybe as simple as these things that ended up being sculptures look, none of that came easily or naturally or without you know, scores of rejected alternatives. That very, very empirical, pragmatic trial and error kind of way of getting there seems to me really central to understanding the process. There's a kind of empiricism to Judd's drawings that I, I think to anybody, you know, that when we think of drawings of the period, that certainly is, is also there in Flavin's drawings which have gotten survey exhibition treatment in New York at the Morgan about a decade ago. I also, as I looked at the Judd drawings in the catalog, and, and again, there are a zillion of them and it's great, but I also kind of thought of the way Wayne Tebow drew in kind of these years, which was empirical and plotting rather than investigational. Is there some reason why artists as seemingly totally different as Wayne Tebow and Donald Judd or Dan Flavin were using or thinking through or making drawings in that way? That's an interesting question. I think it, 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 I would have to think about that for a longer time, but I think it, it points to the way in which the decade of the 60s was just such an almost unfathomably profound turning point for so many artists all over the world that we're still processing what it was they processed then. Ann Tampkin, thanks very much. Thank you. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.